Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the podcast of Community Bible Church. Serving the Rogue Valley from Central Point, Oregon. We are a multi-generational family. Equipping believers to be adopted in, growing up, and reaching out through the gospel. Now, as you're sitting down, if you take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 19, that is where we will start this morning. Revelation 19 and verse 11. Uh, Of course, we have been talking about the end of the world as we know it, and yet we are confident and we feel fine in that. Um, This morning, we're going to talk about the very end of all things and uh, see what Scripture tells us about that. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11, and uh, it says this. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has written, uh, he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on, a, on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will trespass the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has written a name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then if you'll flip with me over to Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, the description goes like this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Amen and amen, and come quickly, Lord Jesus. Seems like an appropriate pandemic question, quarantine question, is this. What are you binging on Netflix right now? Maybe a few more of you are binging than previous services. Heard some snickers there. My family a while back tried to get me to watch this program called Stranger Things. Familiar with that program? It was not my cup of tea. Uh, I actually watched the first season with them, but I found myself waking up in the middle of the night and being scared to venture as far as even a few steps to the background. The images were just intense and scary and upsetting and vivid. And then my family assured me that I should watch season two with them because it was much more mild, much tamer. They lied. (laughs) 
I don't need dark and disturbing images in my life. I don't need scenes of intensity in my life. I need something light and upbeat. I need something sanitized and cheery. What about you? Now, let me give you the bad news. This morning's passage is not light and cheery. It is not soft and sanitized. And I think that a lot of times as Christians, we want something sanitized. We, we want the flannel graph version of Jesus. He heals. He teaches from that boat in the perfectly calm body of water. And sure, he's crucified, but quickly enough, he is resurrected and he returns as gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And he prepares a meal for his disciples on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And he ascends to heaven in those fluffy clouds. When we read Revelation 19, it might be difficult for some Christians to see Jesus as this strong and powerful and majestic figure. He's certainly, he's certainly not terrifying, but he is a striking figure. And in this passage, he's even terrifying to his enemies. And that's exactly how the book of Revelation portrays him, especially here at the end. And one of our problems is that when we ignore the blazing glory of Jesus, it weakens our confidence in his ultimate victory. You see, a Christian's hope is in this Jesus, the conquering king, who is returning to judge the world and to establish his kingdom. I don't know if you ever do this, but you're reading along in Scripture and you've read it a number of times. Something just pops out to you as an emphasis and a surprise. That, that really was my, my experience this week, how predominant the theme of judgment is in this passage. Judgment is the banner under which Jesus returns. And we think of something judgment as something that's negative, something to be avoided. But here, Jesus' judgment is praiseworthy. And it gives hope to us as followers of Jesus. Now look with me at John's vision and how he describes the coming king. He's someone to be worshipped, first of all. Uh, heaven opens up, verse 11, and we see this white horse. And if you've been reading along in the book of Revelation and you get to this point, you're meant to recall that there's another white horse. The angel coming that opens up the seals in chapter 6, verse 2, arrives uh, on the scene in a similar fashion, and he brings God's judgment to earth. And as John describes the writer on this white horse, our attention is drawn to his name. Four different times in this passage, John identifies him by name, and each time an aspect of his character and his mission is highlighted. Look there at verse 11. John says he is called faithful and true. Those are names that he's calling him by. And as soon as he said this, we're meant to recognize the rider on the white horse as the risen Christ. He had previously been both called both faithful and true as he's speaking to and judging the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. And just like the angel in chapter 6 who opened the seals, Jesus is seen coming with judgment. Look at verse 11. John mentions that in righteousness he judges and makes war. And then in verse 12, John uses a couple of descriptions of Jesus. He says that his eyes are like flames of fire. 
Nothing is hidden from his gaze. He sees everything. Jesus' judgment comes and it's intense and his justice comes swiftly. Then John goes on and he says, uses another descriptor. He says, he has many diadems on his head. This is Jesus' absolute sovereignty. He has the right to reign and to judge his people as king of the universe. I think this is different in its view of Jesus than many Christians think about that they know. They might think of Jesus, as we mentioned before, as that kind and wise teacher on the side of the poor and oppressed. Jesus is the one who comes to the city of Jerusalem and he has compassion on her and he weeps over her. He's the one who goes to the grave of his friend and he mourns for the loss. And certainly, obviously, the Bible presents him that way. But people struggle turning the page and worshiping a God of judgment. But that is explicitly the image that John sees and records of Jesus here. In fact, if we think throughout Scripture, divine judgment is the righteous act of a holy God. And a lot of times people want to quarantine off that vision of God to the Old Testament. He's the angry old guy, Old Testament God. I prefer the New Testament, Jesus. He seems to be a little more mild-mannered. But let's be careful of painting Jesus as this agreeable do-gooder. Because if you do that, you haven't accounted for what John sees in Revelation 19, this conquering judge. Back to verse 12 of chapter 19. John returns to the topic of his name. He says he has a name written that no one knows but himself. It's kind of an interesting statement that John makes because three other times in this passage, John calls him by a specific name or recognizes uh, a specific name of Jesus. Sometimes naming something can have the effect of removing its mystique. I think by emphasizing the uncertainty of his name, John presents Jesus here as mysterious. And that mystery is powerful and can be fearful. He is, as C.S. Lewis would say, not necessarily safe, but he's good. Now, Now John turns his attention to a third name. Look at it, verse 13. He says that the rider on the white horse is called the Word of God. Now, if we've read our Bibles, this name is familiar to us. In the beginning, God spoke the world into existence, Genesis chapter 1. And then Paul comes along in the New Testament in the book of Colossians and says that Jesus is the creative verbal force behind God's creative act. In the Gospel, of course, John same writer of the Revelation, introduces Jesus as the Word. The Word became flesh who dwelt among us. And here in Revelation, he's coming to win the battle for his people. Look at what it says there in verse 13. It says he is wearing a robe dipped in blood. This is prophesied in the Old Testament by Isaiah. And the implication is the victory is already won, even as Jesus comes out of the clouds. And now we see the word analogy 
kind of continue the word of God from Jesus' mouth, verse 15, comes a sharp sword. This weapon comes from the mouth of Jesus, just like the powerful creative words in the beginning of time in the creation story. And we're familiar with this too. The writer of the Hebrews has used this metaphor as he compares the word of God to a sword. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. And we usually apply the verse to the Bible, which, as the writer of the Hebrews says, judges the thoughts and intents of the heart. But it could equally be said of Jesus in his role as judge. Listen to what Hebrews 4.13 says. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Not only is Jesus the word, but the word from his mouth judges mankind. He rules, John writes here in Revelation 19, with an iron rod. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. This is the word of God bringing holy judgment. Jesus comes to, listen, destroy evil, not simply to govern. Now John identifies Jesus with one final name in verse 16. He says this, On his robe and on his thigh, a prominent position, is written his name, King of kings and Lord of lords. We think about it, kings rule their territory sovereignly. Jesus has universal sovereignty over all territory. People are conquered and subjugated to a person that they may call Lord. Jesus wins the ultimate triumph, bringing all people under his lordship, whether or not they voluntarily submit. This picture of the powerful and conquering and judging Jesus differs from many people's imagination. They think of that gracious and loving Savior, and that's right. But now Jesus comes as an impressive figure, cut out against the horizon of history. He comes with efficiency and effectiveness. And I think this has implications for us, especially as we think about our worship. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But before we do that, let's look at the battle that he fights and he wins. Not only is the return powerful in its judgment, but he also comes as that conquering king, and this sets up our hope. Revelation chapter 19 recalls the battle of Armageddon from Revelation chapter 16, but just in a little more detail. John's words here paint this picture of an epic battle, and I would encourage you to use your imagination now. Think about it in your mind as I read a couple of verses aloud, verses 17 and following. John says this, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. 
And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Now imagine, if you will, see the picture in your mind. The angel's darkened silhouette against a giant orange sun setting over the hill. Birds swarm, armies amass, horses snort and pull at the reins, and all the enemies coalesce into a single evil force assembled against the king and all of his people. And if you let your imagination wander just for a moment, you can anticipate the sound of clanging as metal and swords clash against one another, the smell of sweat and blood as the epic battle unfolds. But then, if we read on, even before the battle begins, even before any of these things occur, all of a sudden it's over. Verse 20. And the two arch enemies of the king are captured and sentenced to death. The beast who represents that secular power that will rise up against the church and against the lamb and right beside him, the false prophet who represents false re religion that goes about deceiving people and leads them away from recognition of the one true God. These two figures and the systems that they embody have wreaked havoc throughout the book of Revelation. And so we expect this great and epic battle, but it just doesn't come. The warrior Messiah wins the battle with a single word from his mouth, verse 21. Talk about anticlimactic. We were building up, we were expecting this, but then look at the last line there in verse 21. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is what's predicted by the prophets. This is symbolic of Jesus' powerful and awesome victory. When we read Revelation 19, we're getting a glimpse of the end of the story, and what's clear is that Jesus wins, and he not only wins, but he wins decisively, and he wins with a whimper rather than an epic battle. His part isn't a whimper, but the opposition certainly is. But just before this grand conclusion, in the moment that we're in right now and up until this happens, every person has the opportunity to decide their allegiance. And I would think that for most of us sitting in this room this morning, uh, we, we identify ourselves with the victor. And we're meant to benefit from and hope in that triumph that we see coming into the future. So let me ask you this question. Are you living out that hope in your daily life right now? Peter tells his readers in his letter that when Christians live their lives this way, people are going to unsolicited come up to you and ask you about your hopefulness. And this becomes the perfect platform, Peter says, to tell them about the salvation that you have in Christ. I don't know if that's happening to you. I'll tell you what I see contrary to that. Many times, Christian, Christians live their lives in despair and defeat. They focus on their own problems. They become argumentative and nasty. The difference between their lives and the lives of the non-believers around them is really negligible. Why is that? I think there's probably at least two reasons for that. For some people, um, these professing 
Christians actually lack genuine faith. They may have aligned themselves with that secular power that's co-opted religious language or even a false religion. They look at the benefits gained from salvation and that's what they're, what's appealing to them rather than the glory of God. Jesus, to some professing Christians, is not Lord. He is a magic potion that's meant to make the world right. He's the leader of a conservative movement that's going to restore our nation to its founding principles. He's a liberal icon, maybe, whose message of peace convinces humanity to pursue the good that exists within each person. They don't really have genuine faith. They want all the benefits that surround it. I think the second reason that people are not experiencing hope is because possibly they have an anemic vision of Jesus. They don't really know him. He exists in their mind as something less than the powerful figure that we read from Revelation 19. Of course Jesus is meek and mild. Yes, he's loving and compassionate. Of He's not afraid to show emotion, but he's also the holy and powerful warrior Messiah coming on the white horse to judge the nations of the earth. He commands his forces with such power and skill and precision that a single salvo, only a single salvo is needed for the utter destruction of his enemies. He is recognized in that moment as sovereign over all the universe. And as Christians, we have a friendship with that powerful conqueror. He is our brother. But never forget that while he is the lamb who was slain, he is also the lion of Judah. When we see Jesus in his majesty and his glory, our hope is both focused and sharpened. Unbelievers, on the other hand, should be fearful. It should strike humility and true repentance in their hearts. That's what the writer of the Hebrews says, chapter 10, verse 31. He says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And both Jesus and John describe that final punishment of the unsaved as eternal torment, a complete lack of the presence of God. While we read about the lake of fire, we know that it's a place that God has prepared specifically for the devil and his demons. It's also a place where righteous and holy God will send people who choose to align themselves with the forces of evil. Here's the good news this morning, is that God is long-suffering and he has given human beings opportunity to change alliances The end of the story is certain, but in the meantime, God is patiently and graciously waiting for people to turn to him. That's why the events of the revelation have not yet occurred. They're in the future. And we know the answer. We need to remind ourselves of the answer at every turn. It is the good news that is the gospel. That even though every person deserves punishment and death, Jesus stood in our place. He humbled himself. He became a man He gave himself up on the cross. He allowed himself to be put to death, but we know that death could not hold him. 
And as evidence to his power, as evidence to his divinity, divinity, he rose again, conquering both sin and death. And he offers the gift of eternal and transformed life through faith. And we've talked about the way to receive that gift. You simply admit you deserve judgment and punishment because of your sin. You believe that Jesus died. He sacrificed himself. You don't just believe that, but you put your trust in that. And you commit to submission to his lordship. And if that is you on the screen, or if that's you here this morning and you find yourself in need of a corrective, or if you find yourself in need of submitting for the very first time so as not to fall under the judgment of righteous Jesus in the end, today's the day, and I would encourage you to pray and receive Christ, admit your sin. If you need help with that, certainly we would be available and anxious to help you understand that and start your life with Christ. But whether you're a longtime Christian or you're a new believer, when you see Jesus' majesty and power and beauty and lordship, you can't, be help, you can't help but be moved to worship. And I think as we read the book of Revelation, if you're honest, it's punctuated with opportunities of worship. Every couple of pages, it seems, all of the created beings pause to worship Jesus. Human beings are created to worship. And the question that Revelation asks us is, who are you going to worship? When we catch that true vision of Jesus, I think we instinctively turn to him and worship. We, we long for these opportunities of corporate worship, singing and preaching and fellowship and service and, and giving. That's why these last couple of months have been so difficult because it, it seems that that pattern has been interrupted and all of these are opportunities for us to come together and worship the risen lamb, worship the Lion of Judah. When we see Jesus, we orient our personal lives so that everything we do reflects the lordship of Jesus. My junior year, uh, I was playing on the basketball team and we had a good enough team to make the state playoffs. And so, as is common to high school athletes, we kind of strutted into the gym, you know, we knew we were going to do our thing. Now, never mind that we were the lower seed and they had a superstar who was going to go on and play you know, college basketball at a significant level. We were confident that we could not only give them a great game, but in the end, we could overcome them. I was a junior that year, uh, a little bit younger, so I spent a lot of time consulting with the coaches on the bench. In other words, I didn't get in very much. And as the game started, before we could even blink an eye, we were behind 23 to nothing which was really good news for me because it meant I got in in the first half. So I get in the game, crouch low in my defensive stance, and I'm ready. But the next thing that I remember is that I was sort of holding onto the shorts of their superstar, riding his underbelly as he put a massive slam dunk down on me. Um, he was awesome. And we use that word a lot, right, describing people and events. And a lot of times it's just a filler word that we don't really 
used in its appropriate context. But in this instance, it is not a filler. When we think about Jesus in his second coming, the word awesome applies. It will invoke awe in believers and unbelievers alike. The king will come worthy of worship in his holy character and of perfect execution of judgment. And what he's going to do is he's going to welcome his people into the place that he has prepared for them. Let's look at that. We're going to flip over to Revelation chapter 21 to do so. In this passage, John brings readers with him to the new heavens and the new earth. And as we read about in the first couple of verses, the defining feature of this place is God's presence. Now again, as you think about your journey through Scripture over the years, the image of God's presence conjures ideas of the pillar of fire and cloud in the wilderness. Images of the tabernacle and the temple. Jesus' birth announcement as Emmanuel, God with us. And John speaks of the holy city, Jerusalem. We know it as the location of the temple, but when we go to it in the new heavens and the new earth, there is no temple, verse 22. Instead, we find the presence of the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And John writes, verse 3, He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. Those in the city have unrestricted access to God's presence. And then Jesus proclaims, verse 5, that he is making all things new. Over the years, God has made covenants with his people, and now these covenants are fulfilled. Look at verse 7. Those who have conquered are given this assurance. I will be his God, and he will be my son. God's redemption plan is coming to its completion. Former things have passed away, verse 4. There's no sea, which is a picture of the chaos in a world operating outside of God's design, verse 1. There's no mourning, no death, no pain, verse 4. There's no sin, as people have, who have chosen allegiance to the world have been judged and their sentence has been carried out, verse 8. And then if we turn to Revelation chapter 22, it further describes this moment. It becomes the bookend to the Bible story. And as we read through these verses, one through five, our thoughts are drawn all the way back to the beginning, to Genesis and God's perfect creation before sin entered the world. And that's the other bookend. The eternal home of God and of his people is nothing short than a recreated Garden of Eden. Look at it. It is eternal. A tree of life stands at the center It is sustaining. There is water and fruit to enjoy and satisfy people. It is restorative. All the nations come together and worship God. God's original design from Genesis 1 is on display again in Revelation chapter 22. And not only is it the perfect environment, but God's people are also given perfect restoration. Look at verse 4. It says that people will see his face. Remember way back in Exodus when Moses made a similar request and God's reply was that no one can see me and live? In perfect fellowship with him, in this moment, we come face to face 
as in the garden. Further, verse 4, his name will be on our forehead. In contrast to the followers of the beast who took the mark earlier in the book of Revelation, we are marked in that day as children of God and our character will be sealed in righteousness forever because God's name reflects God's character and it's stamped on our foreheads. And then in verse 5, we read this, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. We have eternal and perfect mission and purpose. Remember back in the Psalms, the psalmist writes this, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. In this life, often we only see enough of God's light for one step at a time, but in eternity, our entire pathway will be perfectly lit by God's glorious presence. And you and I are called to live in the hope of this perfect place prepared for us. This is what Jesus promised his disciples, John chapter 14, right? They were facing uncertain times. I don't know if we have any idea what that's like. But he encourages them, let not your hearts be troubles, troubled. And then he outlines the hope of eternity. And after they shoot a few more questions his way, he simply directs them to keep their eyes on him in the meantime. Do we face uncertain times? Do we face unprecedented times in the year of our Lord 2020? Yeah, we do. Are you tempted to lose hope as you face life's circumstances? I saw a statistic this week on the news. 25% of 18 to 24-year-olds in the quarantine have seriously considered suicide. That's unbelievable. Maybe you find yourself in that place of despair this morning. If so, by all means, please come and contact us. We can point you in the right direction for help. But know this, that ultimately, the hopelessness that we are experiencing cannot be solved except in Christ. Look to Jesus. He's preparing for us an eternal home. Look to Jesus. He's going to solve the questions and concerns of life. He doesn't necessarily get, guarantee that he's going to fix your present circumstances, but in eternity, everything is going to be made right. You're facing financial woes or uncertain health or relationship difficulties. The promise and the person of Jesus are our ultimate hope as Christians. And we're called to live out loud in the public as people of this hope. We live in pursuit of righteousness knowing that God dwells in holiness. We live in anticipation of our true home. And in order to do these things, by the way, we're given this new community where the priorities of Jesus are at the center. The church Friends, is where you foster these life-giving relationships and strengthen the hope that carries us through the difficult times. And sometimes Christians are in a place where 
they're expressing their hopelessness, but as you observe their life, you kind of wonder, have they allowed the church family to be displaced in its priority? Their job, their hobbies, their secular relationships have all become central and core to their identity. And then they feel and they wonder why they feel this nagging sense of despair. We are created to be in fellowship with God and with his people. That's our eternal destiny. And we have been given a taste of that reality now in the church. Years ago, we had some neighbors that were also very good friends of ours, and they uh, went to our church. And uh, he was set to inherit his father's business. He was, they were in talks of whether he would take over and how he would take over. And it was a very lucrative business. It would have provided a profitable career and a comfortable retirement. But suddenly, my friend expressed this interest in changing career paths and going a different direction. He wanted to follow his passion and what he felt like God was calling him to. And I think to a lot of the people observing him live his life, it was frivolous and it was unwise to give up the safety of a regular paycheck in a certain future. But my friend found this satisfaction as he was fulfilling his purpose. You and I, friend, have a purpose. We are made for eternity in fellowship with God. And when we substitute the pleasures and pursuits of this world, no matter how noble they might seem at the time, when we substitute those things at the center of our life, we are going to battle a lack of satisfaction that can only be found in the hope of eternity. And when we open our Bibles and when we read the final pages of Revelation and we see John's vision and get that true picture of Jesus, you and I can't help but be changed. We long for Jesus to come, the conquering king to judge the world. And as his subjects, we just are hoping for a kingdom where we can enjoy the spoils of his certain victory. Pray with me, will you? Father, we come to you this morning and we come with confidence that what John saw in his vision and wrote for our edification on the pages of Scripture is true. Father, we, we hope in that, not as a hope that is uncertain, but as a hope that is confident in your ultimate victory. Father, I pray that as we live our lives in the world, as we meet in the church, God, that, that, that people would look at us and they would see the way we react to the uncertainty of life and the difficulty of life, and they would say this, what is going on with that person? What is going on in that church that they have joy and peace and confidence? I would be a wreck. And Father, allow that to both soothe our soul as we face uncertain times, but allow it to be a platform to declare the excellencies of Jesus to the world. Father, we, we ask you for this because in and of ourselves, we do not have that confidence. Father, let us see Jesus. And in seeing Jesus, God, we, we will respond with worship. 
we will respond with hope. And we will respond as people who declare your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast of Community Bible Church. Follow us on Facebook to keep up to date with all our latest content. Thank you.